Welcome back, everyone, to the RF Factor, episode number 17. We're here with Mike Senna. Mike Senna is, and 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 please uh, put your seatbelt on here, he is the director of the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center, dual-hatted with the, as the Northern California Haida executive director, if I have that right. And at the same time, he is the president of the National Fusion Center Association. Uh, I don't know how he has time for all those things and everything else that he does in life, but we're extremely happy to have him on the RF Factor tonight. Uh, Mike, uh, I've known Mike for years, uh, not only as a co-worker, but as a, as a great friend. Uh, and I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to visit him in California. And uh, he's been out uh, our way in New Jersey with his family to visit with me. So I know Mike really well. Mike, really happy to have you on board. Uh, you got to meet Pete earlier, but let's just start off with everything that you got going on. That didn't happen overnight. So um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you got here. No, absolutely. And, and Pete and Ray, thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, it, it, it's like everyone's journey. I mean, I've been doing this uh, 28 years in law enforcement and it, it all starts out with, uh, you know, people looking for a mission you know, in my mind of those things that, that they see that aren't right. And those, you know, people that see a way that they can contribute. And that's the way I saw it, uh, you know, growing up in, a, in an area that wasn't considered the nicest part of, uh, of California, um, uh, Muscoy, California, right, right next to San Bernardino and in an in a, uh, unincorporated area where, you know, drugs flowed pretty heavily, violence flowed along with the drugs and, uh, you know, getting tired of seeing people getting hurt, stabbed, shot, killed and, and people dying from, from the drug trade. And uh, I saw an opportunity when I was a kid. Uh, I decided I wanted to study criminal justice. Uh, went to college, uh, graduated from local state college in San Bernardino and uh, Cal State San Bernardino. And, and uh, from that there, I actually you know, took some internships, uh, did an internship with a local DA's office. Uh, back then, they had county marshals, did an internship with a county marshal. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, really? yeah, county marshal. Oh, wow. they, yeah, uh, yeah. That, we're talking old school here. Uh, yes. Yeah, they didn't they didn't last past the nineties there, but you know, uh, but then I went on to uh to a job with the alcoholic beverage control as an intern and they ended up hiring me. And uh the thing I liked about that was, you know, every in, in my community, every place that was like the center of bad things happening were the liquor stores. And whether the after the hours clubs, right? Exactly. The dope dealers, the pimps, the people that were, you know, the scourge of the community, that's where they were at. That's where all the bad things were happening. So, you know, pretty, pretty right off the bat, you know, I, uh, I ended up, uh, you know, getting hired as a investigator and, uh, my first night, uh, or first day as an investigator moving from, you know, uh, an intern to, uh, kind of an investigative assistant that they called at the time to actually being sworn in and, and, uh, you know, raising my hand, they handed me a gun and bullets uh, and said, go out and do work. And <laughs> that's what I did. I went out and bought dope that night and, uh, you know, arrested people. And, you know, the great part of the story was I was actually able to go back to my community. And one of the places that was like, you know, just a horrible place. I mean, constantly violence in front of it, uh, people being shot at regularly. 
um, was able to go and do dope deals there. And, uh, you know, in fact, I went and bought dope and I went into the store and asked the clerk. I said, hey, I got I just bought my crack cocaine, but I need to smoke it. And the clerk made the crack pipe for me. And uh, <laughs> so, no way. Yes. Customer service. <laughs> that wow. was full customer service. But being able to shut those places down and come back and, and get the right people to come in and operate those places legitimately changed the community. And, you know, that's where I found my niche in narcotics enforcement. And, and believe me, uh, the first time I bought dope, I was scared to death. I mean, I never bought dope in my life here. There's some people that say, well, I bought dope. Uh, you know, I bought marijuana and I didn't buy anything. I was like, you know, just solid clean. My parents had raised me that way. My dad was the local fire captain of the station four blocks away. My mom taught at uh, the wow. local you know, school I went to. So, you know, I, I, we, all, of our, all the kids, uh, you know, went and got great professional careers. Um, and, and none of us ended up, uh, you know, the path that many others took in our, in our community where they took a different path and, and nothing changed. Many of them died on the streets there um, or ended up in jail or prison. Um, but, you know, what I saw and the reason that I went down this path of, of getting into law enforcement was to make a difference. And then immediately I was able to get assigned to task forces. And I started working for uh, the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement, which was the oldest uh, narcotics uh, organization in the country, uh, run by the California Department of Justice. You're kidding. And, yep. And, uh, you know, you know, from 1927 to 2012, um, that organization existed, and uh, just some phenomenal person that worked personnel that worked for B and E. Um, but along the way, you know, I got to you know get on a major narcotics task force, and uh, which was the Inland Crackdown Ally Task Force out of Riverside, and uh, I learned a lot from just some great human beings, great law enforcement officers and leaders. Um, and I think that's the continuing theme of any person that gets in the leadership positions is they they find mentors and they find people that will show them the way and show them what it means to be a, a good law enforcement officer. I remember my first day on the job, uh, you know, as a task force member, I hopped in the car with uh, uh, just a, a great guy, a, a very well recognized in our community, later retired, especially in charge of the L.A. Impact Task Force, um, Tony Ibarra. And uh, Tony goes, all right, as long as you do and, and what you do every day is uh, first off, it's moral, it's ethical and legal. You'll go home every day safe. You'll go home without having to worry about, you know, anything you did that day that was come back and haunt you. Um, and as long as you make sure you take care of your partners and make sure they're doing the same thing, they'll be safe, too. And that's that's the mantra that, you know, kind of helped me through. Um, he later became my brother in law, too, by the way. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, Nicely uh, done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's it's good leaders like that, that, uh, you know, that that help you along the way that that kind of show you the, the path forward. And then, you know, when uh, uh, eventually and I never left DOJ after that point, it was a great job. Uh, September 11th came around and. Um, and Ray knows this story well because, you know, he's he's worked some major terrorism cases, including 9-11 case. And, uh, you know, but it was one of those things where I got a call and the call was, um, you know, you're watching what's happening on TV. Uh, 
we've been called on to create a new organization and within you know the Department of Justice for the state of California to deal with these types of threats and improve information sharing. And you know, I immediately go, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to think about it. I said, you know me, I, I, I am into this. We're gonna, we're gonna try to work on this. Just as much effort as I, I put in narcotics enforcement and violent crime uh, enforcement activities, um, trying to clean up communities, we need to keep our people safe. We need to make sure that they have information and that they, they share information. They know what to look for. So it was, it was hard. I mean, we, we didn't have any roadmap to what we were gonna do. Um, and we stumbled along the way, uh, major stumbles along the way. But, you know, building relationships, working with partners, um, you know, working with our, our FBI partners on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, DHS didn't even exist back then. So, you know, trying to develop this information sharing program uh, that, you know, we didn't even have a name for. And they, they it, like two weeks later, the state signed a, an MOU that said, hey, this is the organization and go out and fight bad guys with, you know, no clear direction. But we started to build a network of people to, you know, one, understand what the threats were, look at what the vulnerabilities were, and then how do we build stronger information sharing capabilities? And along the way, you know, DHS, you know, came came about, um, you know, the, the, the organizations that, you know, that uh, popped up around the country that were later known as fusion centers, um, started to build capacity, and an opportunity came up for me uh, back in 2004, uh, and it was really at, at kind of my wife's direction. Who said, "Hey, um, you know, what do you think about going and taking this position up in San Francisco?" And you know, uh, we moved up to San Francisco. I started, you know, running the task force operation up here, which. Uh, was not in the greatest of shape when it, when I came up. Uh, you know, they they had a lot of problems with uh, interagency cooperation collaboration, and uh, immediately started setting up my effort to just do what I did down in Southern California, make a network of partners and friends, and reaching out to people and getting them engaged in what we do. And during this process, uh, you know, the state operation that was in charge of the fusion center. Um, had some major, you know, major things that became missteps. Um, you know, information sharing, privacy, civil, uh, civil liberties, civil rights concerns. Um, you know, and uh, they were at the point where there was a breaking point. And mm-hmm. but rather than break, break what was created, they said, well, let's enhance what was created, and let's create, you know, four regional centers at the time that would do what the state center was trying to build out and do for a long time, but really couldn't do because it's just such a big state. Uh, Too many people, too many operations and trying to do a centralized operation with a few folks in the field doing work wasn't really working out. So they decided that they were gonna build four regional centers. And uh, it was was hard in the Bay Area just because of some of the politics and some of the concerns about the privacy, civil rights and civil liberties. So, Along the way, the, the high-intensity drug trafficking area in the Bay Area, um, and I'd been a HIDA task force officer since my days in B&E, uh, Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement, um, you know, they decided that they were going to build the, the center um, within the, the foundation of the HIDA program with the HIDA director um, also serving as the, the fusion center director. Interesting. And the uh, the person that uh, got that role, uh, Ron Brooks, and uh, you guys know Ron. Ron's been on the show. We, we know Ron. He's been on the show. Yep. He's a, 
a great human being. And uh, so Ron actually called me up and he said, hey, I'm trying to build this this uh, fusion center. And he goes, he goes, I'm a narc. I, 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 I don't know what I'm supposed to do about this or how I'm supposed to build it. And he said, hey, can you can you meet me for uh, for coffee? And I go, well, I don't drink coffee. I, I'll have a cocoa with you, I guess. And he's like, don't tell me you don't drink alcohol. I go, no, I don't do that either. He goes, well, all right. You can still come and talk to me. And uh, so I sat down with them. We spent probably 30 minutes talking about, you know, the, you know, the fusion center and kind of the, the concepts of bringing partners together, the capabilities that uh, a fusion center would need. And at this time, there was no guidance on how any of this stuff was going to be built. So I, I gave him my spiel, told him, hey, this is what you need to do. And uh, good luck with that. And he goes, ah, hey, I really appreciate this. Um, and you know what? I think I've got this solved. And I'm like, great. Good luck. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. Um, you're coming to work for me. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, I, I don't know if, how to tell you this, but I, I already have a job. And, uh, and you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do the Intel coordination efforts and, and working with you guys is, is a big part of that. He goes, no, no, no. You're coming to work for me. Don't worry. Just, just one second. He dialed the phone called the director of the divisional law enforcement for the Department of Justice and told them to transfer Mike Senna immediately to him. And that's how I got here uh, as his deputy director. Wow. And uh, in, in 2012, he retired, and then I became the director of the HIDA and the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center. And it's along that way, We've it's, it's been an interesting journey. We created a you know, this national network of fusion centers through, you know, really through the efforts of state and local agencies getting together, but we weren't really unified and we didn't have a voice. So early on, we had a, a, a meeting and this happened around 2007 timeframe. We were in Destin, Florida. Uh, it was like uh, the second meeting where we'd gotten people together. The first one was in Denver. It was very convoluted. You know, none of us were running anything as far as these meetings go. We were listening to federal agencies tell us, you know, what we should do. And and we we didn't feel like we had a voice. So we all piled up in a room and there was like 20 of us in a room. I think Ron Brooks was writing on a cocktail napkin and or Bill Harris, one of, one of those guys. And we were all talking about, you know, what do we need to do to, to create a voice and create direction for this network? And we said we need to start an association. So um, luckily, we, we had a couple of guys there that said, all right, let's start this association. We had a couple of false starts, but we, we eventually brought in some really good people. Um, we, we had a lieutenant from uh, Las Vegas uh, Metro that said, hey, I'll, I'll come in. And, yep. and you remember Monahan, he, yeah. he came in and said, all right, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take on that role, president, and brought in some officers. And we created this, uh, uh, you know, this executive board and, and, uh, and co-chairs and or chairs at the time for each of the regions along the country. And uh, we built out what started to be uh, this this network um, of partners at the state and local level that actually started to drive what the National Network of Diffusion Centers has become. And now we're 80 centers, 50 state centers. We've got 27 major urban areas, and we've got three U.S. territories that are part of this network now, and about 3,000 people. Outstanding. Yeah, outstanding. You know, Mike, one thing I'd like to pick up on, and it's way back in in your uh, in your uh, monologue here, is I came on the job oh back in the uh, in, in late nineteen sixty nine, 
in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And um, I got some of the same advice you did about, you know, ethicals, moral, uh, you know, that that type of thing. And and it was almost verbatim right down the line and that, you know, you, you'll be okay on the job if you do these things. But I see something today that's a little different. I'm, I'm seeing uh, young police officers, agents, like back in my old, old agency. I mean, I, when I was on the job, you hardly ever heard of an agent getting shot. Today, there probably isn't a week that goes by. There's not some young agent getting shot. Certainly, there's police officers getting shot and killed every day across the country. There's something different going on here. And and it's it's not only in the law enforcement community, it's it's across uh across the civilian population in terms of, of gun related violence. So I I know where you've where you're going with the sharing of intelligence. Maybe you could speak to maybe what the future holds in terms of sharing intelligence in the area of of gun gun crime. No, absolutely. And, and, and Pete, you know, from your experience in ATF that, you know, every crime that we have and, and true, we have people who get stabbed or ran over and other things, but, but guns are the thing that's, you know, harming people every day. It's not, it's not the guns, the crooks with the guns, obviously. But, you know, when you're looking at, you know, the issues of straw buyers out there, which are, are still a continuing issue of straw purchasers going in there and buying guns because they got a clean record for gangsters. But you know we're and also then you got dealing- ghost guns, ghost guns today, <sighs> guns guns that you can't even trace. You know, no serial. Yep, that's that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, you've got we've got people with three D printers that are that are printing frames for weapons uh, and getting the parts online and and putting guns out there in the street with no serial numbers, no records. So when we talk about you know every day all these shootings that are going on, and even even with our narcotics task forces, you know we you know we would occasionally and, and you know more of the uh, you know some of the serious offenders and and career criminals these guys would all have guns um, they'd all be armed um, but we're seeing everybody with guns now and, and not just one gun I mean we're, we're yeah I mean we have task forces that are pulling thirty guns off of uh, groups here. And and everything from uh, Glocks with auto switches or or the ghost guns that uh, they're yeah. you know they're built with Glock parts with an auto switch that turns it fully automatic to right. fully automatic rifles. Um, you know, we've seen so many people killed off of weed deals and and trafficking of of marijuana. It's it's really I mean we're seeing this huge uptick of people that just they have no remorse. Um, they're they're out there doing violence every day and harming people. And, you know, even in our local area, I had a, I had a local agency that had, you know, a gunfight in a car with with uh, three three individuals. Uh, two of them did not survive. The other one, they, they believe, took a took a bullet and walked away. Um, but, you know, we had guns and all the guns being used were, you know, FN 57 pistols. And, you know, that's, that's not a common weapon for most people out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but we end up finding out that, you know, someone had bought, you know, hundreds of these guns and sold them to gangsters. And uh, and so you're, you've got these issues where people are, you know, dealing with large amounts of cash, dealing with a product that they can move and sell pretty much anywhere because it's legal in a number of states. But there's a whole black and gray market for this stuff that are you know doing some serious harm 
with people. And the fact that you can get these guns, I mean, I, I had a task force officer just a couple of weeks ago said he, he took one of these guns off of a 13 year old. So, you know, the fact that 13 year olds, felons, any person that wants to harm people can get a hold of these. And there's no real, I mean, ATF doesn't even have jurisdiction over these unless they can prove that the, the PMF crossed state lines, unless they can prove that ghosts can cross state lines. Oh, they're selling them. Yeah. Oh, they're making and selling them. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, you know, there's, it's just a bad combination because we've got a lot of people that are, you know, disassociated with, harming others that the whole concept of murdering people doesn't seem to be a block a block in per personalities these days and i think that this combination of people that basically don't care about other human beings lives and now have tools that they can take lives away um we're just seeing more and more and, and cops are are getting in the middle of this unfortunately you know we're, we're dealing with an environment where there's a visceral hatred for law enforcement and, and 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 i would say it's in all communities but in certain communities that are are getting a lot of attention and whether that be i will say whether it's far left or far right i don't care what your politics are but if your politics uh or your 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 mindset is to cause people harm that's what we're dealing is these you know extremist attitudes that uh, folks who have ease of access to weapons. Um, and, you know, on top of that, you know, I think people have become numb, especially after COVID. When you see the death tickers, yeah, they, remember when they used to have that, like every night, you see how many people died from COVID. I mean, the numbers don't even really matter to people at a certain point. Yeah, people it, are numb. They're numb to them. No, I mean, you talk about drug overdoses. And right. 100,000 drug overdoses, a large part of that fentanyl. And, and you know, so we got people that are, poisoning people on the streets and moving guns and selling human beings for sex and labor. Um, it's it's one of the, the hardest times I've seen. And I mean, you know, I, I know when I came out in the 90s, uh, it was a hard time. We had so much violence, especially in Southern California and L.A. We had you know bank robbery teams that were going out there and shooting people. But I haven't seen, I mean, in, in the 28 years I've been working, I haven't seen a time as bad as I'm seeing right now with the, the death and destruction and people that just don't care. And uh, another component of that is, you know, we talk about, you know, people don't understand the criminal justice system. Uh, it's like the people's court. People people watch the people's court and they think, uh, you know, it, this is a, everything's going to get solved in like 15 minutes. So people have no patience for the way the justice system works. And, you know, it may not be the best system in the world, but it's what we got. And but there are people that get very upset about this. And unfortunately, if they don't like a decision, then they take up weapons and arms sometimes to do some retaliation or to cause harm to others. Hey, you know, Mike, that, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. No, go ahead, Pete. Go ahead. You know that we, we're sort of laying out the bad news here. Yeah. If there is if if there is any any good news, it's it's that today, with our technologies that we have available to us today, we can gather so much more information. We can Absolutely. collect it in terms of uh, ballistics from the firearms, the the um, the serial numbers of the firearms, where where they originated from, DNA from. Uh, uh, all kinds of, uh, of of items, of latent fingerprints now, with all the different techniques to uh, discover and and raise latent fingerprints. Um, 
automatic license plate reader, readers, um, security cameras in every household prop, practically, a ring camera, a shot spotter being able to detect gunfire. So the, I, the, I don't think the problem today is that there's no data, there's no evidence, there's no intelligence. I think the problem is there may be so much that we find ourselves overwhelmed and and organizations like yours, Haida and Fusion Centers, I think we have to look to you to be the, the ones to rally the troops and, and sort of create this, this laundry list of, of what we should be collecting and how we should be managing it. Um, and so are, are you guys looking at, at new areas that you're moving into, new techniques? in the area of what you're collecting and, and and dealing with the problems we've just talked about over the last few minutes? No, absolutely. You know, uh, that, that information sharing is key and analysis is key too. And, and, you know, as far as the tools out there, I mean, there's a, a whole multitude of tools. Now, one of the things that we've even done locally is we've, we've put all the tools or at least a good chunk of some powerful tools and one single sign-on place that people can go to in our area have access to a lot of the tools you just you just talked about. Uh, that's one of the things because people, you know, what I've seen, and especially with a lot of retirements recently in law enforcement, is that we have a lot of people that don't even know what tools are out there. So being able to educate people on, hey, this is a place you can go to to get access to these resources um, that help you share information, help you find the information you're looking for. Um, I think those that, are some of the big issue. problems. That's a that's yeah. a very very big yeah. issue. I yeah, mean, if the, you don't know where to look, you're never going to find it. You know, an, an old, you, an, people an old don't timer. know. They don't know what they know. Yeah. An old timer in New Jersey said, "If you don't know what the acronym stands for, you don't know what the program is about." <laughs> well, and I, and I'll tell you. So, I mean, this became such an issue in the last year and a half with turnover of people, people retiring. I mean, I've been to a number of meetings, like national meetings, and I've asked questions to people about, "Hey." you know what this program is? Raise your hand if you know what the hell this is. And and I'm looking across the room and no one's raising their hand. You're right. So I actually put together this presentation and it's it's a long one right now. Um, it, it, it's it's huge, but it's it's uh, it's got, you know, 55 different organizations that kind of make up all the different pieces that share information across, at least within the country. Now, I'm not talking about the, uh, you know, the intelligence community out there and the, and the director of national intelligence, although they're a part of this as far as the information sharing environment. But I'm talking about all the kind of major nationwide organizations that have a piece of this. Hey, hey Mike. Is that, oh, go ahead. You know, um, no, 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 just finish, because I, I want to pull on this uh, thread a little bit, but but go ahead, finish. No, I, uh, what I was saying is that there's so many pieces to this that the partners don't even know each other in some cases. And that's that's probably the biggest barrier is we can't have information sharing if you don't know who the players are. It, you know, it's like it's like watching a watching a football game and everyone's playing a different sport on the team, you know. And nobody's got the numbers or names that match the program. So, you know, that's the reason I put this presentation together was to try to educate people on saying, who are the players in this organization? And then what's the doctrine? And that's the key part of this. Without doctrine, without policies, without procedures and guidance, we can't operate and function appropriately. And without relentless follow-up. And that's, <laughs> that's the RF factor. And that's what we're on today. Yes. 
So, so Mike, what, what I want to tease out here is um, we all agree that hindsight's 2020. Uh, you've been at this game a long time. You've been at information sharing, fusion, and analysis for quite some time. In fact, I think you, when you talked about that Destin meeting, that was around 2007, right? So mm-hmm. yep. you're, we're talking going on 15 years or so that you've been at this game. And uh, the the aperture for fusion centers for information sharing continues to widen, right? It you yeah. you still have a you still have that unblinking eye on terrorism, and then of course it moved to include crime, and then natural disasters, then uh, fentanyl and uh, overdoses, and then pandemic, and it just keeps growing. Cyber, it just. It just uh, yeah. keeps growing and growing, but fundamentally, and and I and I've heard you describe this as you were speaking in the introduction. Fundamentally, is information sharing, right? Yeah. And what I have found, and fortunately, I I had the opportunity to work alongside you, and there's no better person that can carry the message uh, than you on the value of information sharing. But hindsight being 2020, and how people seem to forget or to your earlier point about turnover being king for the day hindsight 2020 what are you learning like it's been 15 years so how do you collapse that that or flatten that 15 years into say five or six months to get folks to understand and recognize what information sharing is how to leverage those capabilities that already exist, and then continue to innovate the area of information sharing. So I'm giving you that platform, you hindsight 2020, my friend. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, you know, we've come up and the nation's come up with all kinds of strategies, strategy for this strategy for that. Um, Strategies don't always agree with each other. And I think the hardest part is uh, the follow up and, uh, you know, how do you measure success? And I think that's been the hard part is if if I could change things for the last 15 years uh, or 16, 17 years that we've been doing this, uh, you know, directly trying to build this, the network and and the integration with the HIDAs and with the regional information sharing system partners, you know, FBI, DHS, uh, all the DOJ components and, and all those partners, I, I would say that, you know, what we should have done all along was develop kind of uh, more of a framework that talked about how all these things work together and then how we would measure our success and collaboration from the start. Um, you know, we didn't even start looking into that until after the GAO came out with a report in 2013 uh, that said that there were gaps and said that, hey, we've got to fix these gaps. And this was just focusing on, you know, the terrorism issue. But, you know, all the threats that we face um, are interconnected. So there's no way we can say that, you know, whatever the flavor threat of the day is, is not connected to the other threats. And we've got to leverage the same resources and capabilities. You mean so it, what it, you're saying is that that terrorists uh, can sell drugs to make money and, and, and use guns and traffic guns to, uh, you know, for security or to harm other people. Is that what you're saying? That all these yeah. things are interconnected. So we should it, all understand those information streams, right? 
fusion. Everything is interdependent. And and here's the here's the bigger problem we've got is that, you know, and this is education piece. I mean, the education and training piece and which are two separate things, obviously. But, you know, in the training component of it, when we talk about you know, basic academies for law enforcement, you know, we have struggled over the years to get this type of information. Intelligence needs to be a part and information sharing needs to be the foundation of law enforcement in America. But too often we find people that are sitting on information until after things have gone wrong. That's the whole point of the 9-11 report is that there's lots of pieces of information that could prevent a threat or multiple threats or huge threats. But if people don't know how to identify the risks, and I think that that training on the risks, those behaviors that are indicative of criminal activity, because, you know, cops have to have a foundation for probable cause, right? So we've got to train them at a basic level. And not only the basic level, but it goes up the entire chain. Chiefs and law enforcement executives need to know how to use the information and people need to know how to deliver it to them because ultimately the whole point of information sharing and intelligence is so that people can make decisions. And we look back on uh, this this year, on January 6th, as a, as a prime example of, hey, you know, information sharing, sharing what's could potentially happen and making sure that gets to decision makers so they can make the best decisions. And and I always tell people, you know, any analyst or any intelligence professional is not going to tell you there's 100 percent accuracy that anything's going to happen. They'll tell you that there's probability that something may happen, but, you know, they're going to give you the best the best analysis they can. Now, one of the problems that we know, and I, I got to tell you, I've had meetings over this last year of people saying, hey, I, I don't have time to read a you know a 20 page brief on something. If it's not on the front page and I'm the executive because I've got a lot of things I got to do. And that's, I think, the the ability to make concise, uh, you know, direct information, provide that bluntly to an executive so they can just make it make choices. And that's that's what that's what information sharing and intelligence is all designed to do or should be designed to do is give people the options uh, that are available to them. And if we're not doing that, then we're failing and bad things happen when we fail. And if people don't share information when they need to, they fail. But right now we have whole groups of people that don't even know that there is a suspicious activity reporting program in this country of how to report information. And, and they also don't know there's a privacy, civil rights and civil liberties um, guidance that go with that. Um, all too often I'm watching and I do this. I, I watch YouTube every once in a while and I'm watching interactions between as long uh, as you're watching, as long as you're watching our shows, that's okay. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Your person and I watch the other guys, but I, I see interactions between law enforcement and the public that may not go the route that, you know, as, as people who've been in the, in the job for a long time, we go, Oh, this is going to go bad. And, uh, and it's because, and I, I put that back on, you know, the education and training component of this, of, you know, we don't have folks that, that are skilled and trained on listening information. Um, those that, um, you know, know how to interact with people who may be exercising any of the rights uh, and, you know, could find out ways to gather information effect more effectively than what you sometimes see on the television or, or in these in these uh, these shows that other people are doing as podcasts or or discussions about after actions of law enforcement. So there's a lot of you know cops are on microscopes every day because you know they're they're on camera. I mean, there's cameras everywhere. But when we talk about 
how do we train, you know, from the from the guy who's starting an academy to the chief executive of an organization that intelligence and information sharing and analysts are important. I mean, analysts are the key fundamental for or should be for every law enforcement agency. But if you look out there and say, all right, how many analysts are there in the country that are members of you know great organizations like ILEA that represent analysts nationwide? It's a very small number. It's not the first thing an agency thinks of. Oh, I need to get an analyst. Um, and I'll tell I you, when to, I started, I need to get another foot soldier on the ground. Exactly. But it, an analyst can save you so much time and energy and focus you like a laser on the problem. One and, analyst could make several foot soldiers more efficient and effective. Absolutely. And and the other thing is sharing information, even among agencies. So, you know, we've, we've had the National Data Exchange, uh, the index program at CGIS at FBI, um, and they've been around, uh, I mean, my first meeting with them, I think, was in 2007. And, uh, wow. and they've been trying to get, you know, agencies to contribute data. And even to this day, you know, we're, we're, still, we're still under half of the agencies in the country are contributing data from their RMS systems, from their, you know, from their jail management systems. You know, and without the data that we connect these trends, we connect these these criminals that are, you know, basically been arrested and many times convicted, but may not have met criteria for a certain you know data input. We can't make these connections. And same thing with ALPR technology. So we've got you know pockets of excellence. And if I were king for a day, I'd say, you know what? If anyone's going to be in this business, the first mantra should be, I have a duty to share. Wow. If I if I hear you, what you've just said over the last couple of minutes is not only are you talking about moving the responsibility of for knowing what should be collected and how it should be collected down lower to the street level law enforcement, but I think I heard you say even even beyond that into the general population where the citizenry has a certain responsibility to understand where the threats lie to the public and how to report them in an appropriate way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the key, the public is the key. And, and you know, I, and I think I've heard it on this show, but, you know, the, the, the police are part of the public and the public are part of the police where, you know, you know, this isn't, this isn't the military. Uh, we're, we're, you know, Sir Robert Peel are... said that Sir Robert Peel. <laughs> and, and I know it's been, uh, I, I know I've heard it a few times around the, you, you know, at least the two of you, but, you know, when we talk about, you know, how we operate and how we work, um, we got to have the community's involvement. You know, we, we can't protect them if, if, you know, if they're not engaged with us. And we also can't protect them if, if we're not, you know, keeping an eye on our, our protection of privacy, civil rights and civil liberties and being transparent with our, with our partners in the public. I mean, there are certain things we can't, especially in the intel world, we can't, we can't divulge our techniques and our sources. Sure. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any. Um, right. But you know, there are things that we've got to be able to be open and, and, and communicate with. And I, and I know that there's everyone's concerned about, you know, litigation and, and liability. But I think there's a greater liability with a lack of trust in law enforcement. And if key, we can't key get word is trust. Absolutely. That, I always tell people that, the, you know, intelligence is all about trust. And if you don't have trust, you don't have intelligence. So and if you don't have the community engagement, so they report things and give up information. 
I mean, I've seen terrorist attacks stopped. I've seen people identified who are going to do very bad things because someone picked up a phone, because someone, you know, you know, sent in a anonymous tip, uh, you know, to law enforcement. And that's that's the key, because, you know, Secret Service has done a number of reports through their uh, their National Threat Assessment Center, the NTAC. Um, great crew of people. Uh, but in their reports and they've they've looked at the mass casualty shootings for probably the last at least 10 years. And every single one, you know, there there are people that knew that person was going to do something horrible. Somebody um, knew. Someone knew. Yeah, they they call it leakage spillage, but somebody heard that person say something that just didn't seem right, and they never told anybody. Hey, and, I said, Mike, uh, w- would you agree that? And and I think that the two of you have actually uh, expanded to not just say public safety, but the community as well. Is that you know sharing information is not necessarily um, innate. It, it, it has to be a learned behavior and, and such is the case with collaboration, right? Um, you almost in, in the world that that you're in now and, and Pete and I came from it, it's almost that you you have to compel collaboration before it before it takes root. Do you still see that today? Um, even though you're in that business of sharing information, it just seems that people just they don't know how to it's not a it has to be a learned behavior. They they don't come understanding that. No, no, not at all. And I've actually seen it gotten worse since COVID, you know, with lack of interpersonal interaction, um, you know, drops in communication. But I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, when, when we became cops uh, a long time ago, um, you know, everyone was like protecting their cases and, you know, people didn't communicate even in their own squads. Uh, you well, know, everyone's well, trying scalps, to- scalps counted that, right? Yeah. You know, everyone's trying as, to get their collars. As, and, as, and- as Tom O'Reilly used to say, there, there's no, uh, you don't get any credit for an assist in law enforcement, right? Absolutely. And, and I, I really look at, because that's one of the things that I'm all often asked is, all right. Um, can you tell me how many arrests have happened because you shared information? And I'm like, we don't have that type of data. It's, you know, when people ask for help and you give them help, or if you search Google, do you tell Google every time that you found something <laughs> on Google? Because, you know, they helped you out? Yes. No. And, and you know, when, when we started, there were cops that said, hey, you know, they, they, got, they, got, they got hash marks. And they got, you know, things on their collars because they made the great arrest or great boss it, or great kid. It is a meritorious profession, right? So. Yep. But, you know, changing the dynamic of how we think about, uh, people that promote and and those that build strong relationships and those that build the organization as a key rather than the single player. And I always tell people, this is a team sport. We have all got to work together because everyone's got a piece of the puzzle. Everyone's got a you know something they can contribute, and people have problems that others can solve. And you know, building those networks and capacity and capability is, is a key thing that we have to do. It's not competition. I mean, no, no one's going to win the gold badge because you know they they you know ran the case by themselves. But it's the guy that runs the case by himself and doesn't tell anybody about it that gets people hurt. And I've seen drops in you know even in in you know people using the deconfliction systems. You know, uh, in this last year, I, I recently did an assessment looking at, you know, how the usage was. And I, I was shocked. I was shocked on how little 
people were deconflicting. And I mean, there's there's organizations actually, uh, you know, are mandated to deconflict, and and their numbers were beyond. I mean beyond the pale. And, you know, one of the things that we have to look at is that self-assessment of how we're operating as law enforcement to be effective and efficient. And if people are not deconflicting, and, and you guys know the whole deconfliction story, if if I'm going out to a corner of, uh, you know, walk and don't walk, and I'm going to do a dope deal, or I'm going to do some type of financial transaction with a bad guy, I got to let people know I'm going there through the deconfliction system. And right now, um, if agencies aren't doing that, there's a there's a very good likelihood one um, they may run into someone else's investigation, or they may run into another cop who's the guy that's you know the buyer or seller of their wares. And the other component of that is you know you know that officer safety issue. And unfortunately, we've seen issues in the last you know three four years that you know were not pretty, um, where cops met with other cops, both thinking that the other one was a crook. And we created systems 40 years ago to stop that. But there are people who forgot. There are people that, you know, don't, you know, weren't passing the word or baton to the others on why this is important. And that's why that doctrine, why that education, why that training is important about all of these things that people have lost. And it's like I said, there's, you know, in that PowerPoint I've got, there's 55 different organizations and things out there. But if you don't know what they all are, you can't leverage them. What, what is the reason? for not using the deconfliction system? In other words, is it that they're trying to hide something or is it that they don't feel that everybody else is participating so it's a waste of time to deconflict? Like, what, what do you think the problem? I think it's more of an issue with just a lack of knowledge about the system and knowledge about the resources and the tools that are available. Uh, I think that's a greater issue is that, you know, if it isn't a policy in an agency that you must deconflict, I mean, there, there are some other, you know, organizations around the country and other HIDAs that have been able to get, you know, judges to say, all right, I'm not going to sign a search warrant unless somebody, unless I see a deconfliction number on the search warrant. And I really think consistency and things like that, that say, you know, you can't do a search warrant unless you have a deconfliction number. You can't go out and do an operation unless you've deconflicted. I mean, that was one of the first things that I learned in my job. And, and believe me, before I got over to Cal DOJ, I wasn't deconflicted either. I mean, I, I didn't even know what the system was. And that was the sad part. Um, it wasn't until I started working with task forces that I learned about the deconfliction tools, and you know, in the early '90s. And so, if you put a, I, if you put a process in place that says you can't go from uh, step A to step B without a deconfliction number, well, yep, that'll sort of solve the problem, or else nobody will ever get to step B. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that, that's not in place everywhere. It, no, and that, that that's the problem. And, and it seems as though that what exacerbates the problem is the, the, the ebb and flow of new people coming in and out of different positions, getting promoted, moving on to other things, getting transferred. So you've got this continuous wave of new people coming into these, these sensitive jobs, sensitive positions. And, and without a whole training program, they may never know about this. However, with a process that says you can't go from step A to step B without a deconfliction number, that sort of helps solve the problem. So oh, absolutely. It, takes, it takes policy and it takes 
it takes a, 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 a an efficient process that is implemented through policy that has some sort of accountability. Hey, hey, Mike, uh, I was going to ask you a question and I was afraid to do it because um, it, it's something that I think you really have to have some introspection on. I don't know if there's any any right answer to it. So I'll, I'll help you out. I'll give you a little context based on what Pete just described here. When, when I first met Pete, um, one of the many things that he would sort of uh coach me on and and you know add that that wisdom was just in general any initiative any uh major accomplishment any project it really is the is the is the sum of uh, three components in fact he calls it the three-legged stool um people processes and and technology and you could expand that as and, and Pete could actually expand that farther. But so we've sort of talked about whether it's deconfliction or whether it's inform obviously deconfliction is a subcomponent of information sharing. But what what I'm hearing you and Pete describe here is that at the end of the day, it always comes down to people. Yeah. Regardless of the technology, regardless of the processes. You know, people find an interesting way on how to interpret and navigate around processes and awesome technology. So, again, you're king for the day. What do you do to ensure that those people and you're like you live this you live this every day, not only within your own command, but where you sit at the National Fusion Center Association and um as well as, and we didn't, we we failed to mention the other national organizations, and maybe you should speak to that as well. That you're very much involved with at the executive level, you're dealing with this every day in terms of influencing people to do things the right way. Can you tell us about that? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, and I've I've got some other you know positions that I chair nationally uh, directly on information sharing. Just just some know, other ones, you know, criminal intelligence. Uh, but you know, it, it's a difficult road because there's there's major gaps. And I mean, the things that we've developed, uh, you, know, you know, over the last twenty years, National Criminal Intelligence Sharing Plan is one of those. You know that really talks about how information should be shared across the country. Um, it describes some of the obstacles. It, it takes some of the, the, you know, the things that we learned from the 9/11 Commission report on on how do we improve the environment, how do we improve information sharing. But the, but the the problem that we have is that you know there's no real accountability to anyone right now. I mean, we talk about not having accountability on the street and the crimes that we're having uh, you know, around the country in certain certain areas because, you know, people aren't held to a standard. People aren't seeing what they what, what we any of us believe should be just or justice. Um, but we've got to have, you know, that capacity to measure success. We have to have metrics. We have to have a way to, to figure out, um, are we doing the right thing? And, and I think that's that's one of the big things that we've got to develop nationwide are metrics for success and in information sharing and collaboration. And we've got to have the ability to call people out when they aren't meeting goals and, and expectations. Because the problem we have is we've seen what we believe are the worst things that could happen to our country. 
We've seen buildings drop. We've seen people fly planes into the buildings. We've seen people take on the Pentagon and, and put a hole in the side of it. Um, we've seen people dying across this country from all the threats from, from uh, you know, dealing with disease to dealing with, uh, you know, a epidemic of opioids. Um, the next threats are coming. The next bad guys around the corner or bad group or individuals that mean us harm. So, you know, if we could do anything, it would be to consolidate where these resources can be found. It would be developing training for everyone from the line to the chief executive, and it would be training for the public. Um, it, it'd be educating people on how they can help keep their community safe. And, and I think that's the, the people don't feel like they have any power anymore. I mean, there's a lot of hopelessness in America. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of is that lack of hope. And I, I think a minute ago you touched on accountability. And if 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 we don't hold ourselves accountable in the law enforcement community, I think someday, sometimes people on the outside, this is a very litigating uh, uh, environment we live in today. And people on the outside will hold us accountable. Um, there was that uh, lawsuit uh, where... Uh, I believe the FBI uh, mishandled or was accused of mishandling some information, and and they won a multi-million-dollar lawsuit. The plaintiffs did in civil court over this. Somebody was held accountable, and um, so if we don't do it ourselves, eventually other people will do it for us, but with a lot of pain and suffering and and at a very high cost. No, absolutely. And, and I, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's got to be and, you know, we, we had some great, great folks out there like Shamendra Paul, who is one of the folks that that helped build the, you know, as the program manager for the information sharing environment. Um, specifically, you know, his area was was counterterrorism. But we lack a person like that or a position like that in in you know, national leadership and government that can help be that neutral party that works towards that goal that we should all strive towards as a country that we, we protect people's privacy, civil rights and civil liberties and protect their lives because we're doing the right thing every day, sharing information, holding each other accountable and and creating a plan um, and, and using, I shouldn't say creating a plan. We have lots of plans. We just need to follow the plans we've got and, and, uh, and actually have something that um, is more concise because no one's going to read a, you know, and I know that my my presentation that I did to describe all these entities is like, uh, it's like 320 slides right now. But, you know, but that stuff's got to be sliced down into <laughs> ways that are manageable for people to understand. And I almost go back, uh, Pete, to the old idea of checklists. You know, as cops, we had checklists of, of what, how, what are you supposed to do? And, and exactly. You know, just like you said earlier, you start at point A and how do you get to Z? Here's the checklist. Exactly. So we're at the point where we need to create a checklist of the things that each person's roles and responsibilities are and what they should do. And it, it can't be too complex or it gets lost. Um, but that's that's part of this is is we can't keep people accountable unless we tell them exactly what we need them to do. And, and you know, um, this this issue of of uh, leadership, I, you know, I, I wrote a blog about this, especially in the area of dealing with gun violence in America. The buck has to stop some. 
Somebody, yep. one person has to be responsible for the buck stops for the national leadership, whether it's in, in, in the area of intelligence sharing or evidence collection or whatever. But if you're going to deal with a national problem, the buck has to stop at one place. One person has got to be responsible and held accountable. Absolutely. And the other part is that every, you know, every organization has to have a voice of some sort. They've got to have ability to contribute um, and we can't exclude people. So we've got to figure a way to give give people the voice. So that way, when we make change, they're part of change. And unfortunately, right now, and, and I've seen over the, you know, unfortunately, the last you know few years uh, is that people's voices They've been taken away. They, they haven't been consulted. They haven't been part of the conversation to make change. And, and I think that, you know, we've got to bring the, the, all the voices together. We got to bring the people together. Now, not everyone's going to like the way things are moving because you're never going to make everyone happy, but we've got to make positive progress. And, and I really feel in, in many areas we have regressed uh, especially in the last year and a half uh, that we've regressed the things that I thought were fundamental things that we built after September 11th, people have forgotten and aren't being used or aren't being connected. Wow. And I, I've said this before and, and I, and believe me, other people have said this long before I heard it, but the farther away we get from September 11th, the closer we get to September 10th, 2001. Hey, Mike, uh, we're, we're coming up on, on our hour here, and we usually like to break it here, but uh, I just sort of have like a final question for you. You've, we've spent the better part of our discussion on things that you're doing organizationally, whether it's uh, in Northern California or nationally, but I sort of want to focus on you for a moment uh, one of our tenets of the RF factor is to help aspiring leaders. Uh, what I found, and, and, and certainly Pete, we agreed, this was one of the, uh, the foundational elements of the RF factor is that we wanted to sort of give back and contribute. By doing that, we were going to interview folks like yourself, leaders, patriots like yourself. Um, with that said, what has been your secret to success? You've done very well in terms of not only a storied career, but being uh, selected, elected into p executive positions because of your leadership. Is there anything you could point to, whether it's, uh, um, and I think you sort of touched on it before, there's gray beards that you listen to along the way, but what kind of uh, advice can you give aspiring leaders about how to navigate this this gauntlet called a, a law enforcement, public safety, counterterrorism, or in general uh, a career? No, absolutely. I mean, you gotta have you gotta have, uh, you know find those people that can help you um, to get where you want to be. Uh, the people that um, are, are of strong moral character, of people that you can look up to and you can talk to and get guidance from you also have to have great partners in life i mean i couldn't have done anything that i that i've done thus far in my life without the great support of my wife i mean in my family you know uh my kids that you know help help keep me going every day uh because they're hard days they're you know when you're when you're moving and you should always move as fast as you can in the right direction 
um, you know, looking for that that goal. But you know, the other thing is, yeah, you, you have to be accepting of failure, um, and and you're going to fail. There are things in life that don't work out. Um, there are things at at the workday or things that there are problems. Um, but you've got to use those failures as things that you learn from and things that you can grow from. Um, you, you know, you learn a heck of a lot more from failing than succeeding. And that's why, you know, every person will tell you that it, in order to get to where you want to go, you're going to stub your toes. You're going to you're going to piss off a lot of people from time to time. Um, you, you can't be afraid of 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 that. You've got to be able to move move in the right direction and set the path. And you've got to have goals not just for the units that you may lead or manage, but goals for yourself and, and you know where you want to be and you want the organization to be. And the other thing is that as you lead and others follow you, you've got to be a mentor to others wow. and be able to support others. And that's something that I try to do as best I can. I mean, sometimes you get very mission focused and, uh, and you're like a steamroller. Um, especially when you're looking at the, you know, where you see you want to go and you need to go. And, uh, but no one ever gets there alone. And so you've got to have your partners with you. You got to have your supporters with you and you've got to have your family with you. And, you know, the people that you can rely on when all things go bad. And I think that that's what I've learned is that, you know, this is all about the, as we said earlier, it's all about the trust. It's all about the friendship. It's all about the family. And law enforcement is a family. We we take care of each other, but when somebody messes up, we also take care of each other. We we don't cover for people. Um, we got to make sure that we're accountable to each other. And like uh, you know, my my uh, my old partner, uh, my my brother-in-law Tony Parr <laughs> said uh, to start with, you know, um, it's always got to be you know something that is moral. It's always got to be something that's ethical. It's always got to be something that's legal. That's the business we're in. And every day we have to do the right thing because that one moment when you do the wrong thing, that's when it's going to take you and your, you and your family down. Mm-hmm. And you got to have pride in your job. I mean, you have to have that pride just like you do, hopefully with family. Um, you got to be proud. And no matter, you know, oftentimes I talk, I talk about where I came from and, and the community is not being the, the hottest place on the planet, you know. Um, you know, every time I, I run into cops from that area and I say, hey, I grew up in Musquoy and they look at me and they're like, and I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm one of the guys that, that got out. I'm one of the guys that, that, wow. that uh, you know, made it and, and uh, you know, did, didn't end up going down the wrong path. And, and there are a lot of folks that, that do that. There are a lot of folks that come from areas that, you know, may not be the greatest places on the planet, but you got to look at where you're going to be. And right now, I'm standing on the 14th floor of the federal building in San Francisco, <laughs> running one of the greatest programs and the greatest jobs and working with the best people on the planet. And they're all my family. Well said. Mike, uh, I want to thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your vision. And uh, keep at it, my friend. Godspeed. Thank you. Hey, ditto that, thank my friend. Ditto that. Thank you.